Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here today. Take your Bibles and turn to that passage, please, 2 Corinthians 8. And uh, we'll be looking at uh, verses 1 to 7 today. Um, and uh, going to begin a little journey in the um, two chapters here in this letter, um, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Let's pray, and uh, we'll get to work here in the passage. Father, we are grateful today to be in your house and privileged to be um, in your assembly of believers, Lord, longing for you to be able to work in our lives in new and fresh ways. We pray that um, you would minister to us through your word. We pray that your heart would be pleased with everything that happens in this room. We pray that your word would have life in our souls and that you, Holy Spirit, would be our teacher as we um, look to learn not only what this text says, but we look to learn how we can apply it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday was a uh, historic moment in the life of our church ministry. Uh, For over a year now, we have been thinking and planning and praying about what to do in terms of some of our facility needs. And uh, last Sunday, I presented um, to you as a congregation, and then we met on Sunday evening about our mission expansion project, a um, $19 million expansion and renovation of our existing facilities, um, our comprehensive and value-driven uh, building to try and help us with our growing space challenges. Last week we had 3,400 people here, and if our numbers show like they did in years past for Easter, we're planning for around 4,500 folks to worship here with us on Easter Sunday. As you drove up, you may have noticed some um, uh, less parking spaces over on the east side of the building. We're beginning to install some modulars over there to give us some more room in, um, in worship too. Um, last Sunday night we uh, voted as a congregation to um, consider going into 40 days of uh, seeking the Lord's will for our church ministry, and uh, that was approved by 99% margin, uh, which we were very excited about. In fact, the vote was 99.7%. The vote to receive me as pastor was 99.3%. So as I told folks, you know, the reality is these folks want a building more than they wanted me, so that's pretty cool. So uh, that's not hopefully not true, but it certainly was a, a positive vote. We're grateful for that, and now we move into a season of just discerning the Lord's will for our church, 40 days of prayer and discovery. And what we're really looking for you to pray about is the fact that in order to move forward, um, even though our elders believe we've got the right facility, we've got the right plan, uh, it really comes down to uh, individual families praying over the fact that we have uh, a need, a funding need of $14 million between three-year commitments and our budget contribution. And so um, we're going to take um, a break from Matthew for a couple weeks, about two or three weeks, We'll jump back into Matthew on uh, March, the um, I think it's the 12th, or 21st rather, where we will um, deal with the subject of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So the good news, I get four weeks to figure that thing out before we jump in there anyways. But in the meantime, we want you to prayerfully uh, consider where we're at as a church. In order for us to take this next step, this historic step as a church, we need um, as many people as possible on board from a financial contribution standpoint. And so we're asking you to really prayerfully consider uh, what it is that you would do with us in the next 40 days. So there's a couple action steps we'd like you to take. The first would be this. Over the next 40 days, we'd ask you to mark out some special time to pray, either just personally, pray as a small group, pray in a large group gathering, uh, just uh, be a part of our uh, Fresh Encounter service on uh, February 21. I want you to pray and ask God just to give us His heart and His will as we enter this season. Uh, God has shown up in times past at College Park through these 40 days of just praying and seeking God's face, and we're asking Him to do so again. 
The second thing is that, very practically, we would really like every person, a part of our church ministry, whether you're a member or a non-member, to be at one of our dessert nights. And these are about 12 or so evenings uh, in the next uh, three to four weeks where you can interact uh, with our vision, ask questions, see specifics on the drawings, kind of imagine how it impacts uh, your family, and uh, be able to ask questions, dial in at, at a more intimate level. Groups of about 120 or so um, will be uh, gathering on Tuesdays and Thursday evenings over the next number of weeks. And we have a sign-up that's beginning today. Last week was kind of the vision. This week is an opportunity for you to sign up. We have some kiosks out in the foyer, and we'd love to have you sign up today, kind of mark your spot um, in that dessert night. As a part of that dessert night, you'll receive a commitment card and uh, that commitment card will be your way to communicate back to our elders, and we'd like you to turn those in to us by March 14th. We'll be reminding you of that um, in the weeks to come. But uh, this is an important tool for us just to discern what it is that we're willing to do together, and we need giving at all levels in order for us to take this next step together. And let me just tell you how, to th- how I would ask you maybe to think about this. I'd like you just to think about giving at what I would call the gulp line, okay? The gulp line is what happens when, as a husband and wife, you pray through, or as a single person, you pray through what you believe God is is leading you to do, but it's realistic, yet it's also painful. So it's possible, but painful. So to be able to think, okay, God, what is it that you'd ask us to do as a family, and and to make a commitment that you think, ooh, that that would be a stretch for us, that would create... Um, some sacrifice on our part. And that's what we're asking um, you to do over the next 40 days. See, the reality is this is a really important moment in our church's history. Uh, and the vision for this project will only be realized if we do this together. And so, therefore, we're asking you to be engaged. We need you to be engaged and for us to seek the Lord together during these next 40 days. So, today we're going to begin a uh, about a four-week uh, little sub-series on uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Uh, yes, we are going to talk about giving. Okay? Just to lay the cards on the table. There's a lot of things I love to preach on. Giving is not one of them. Okay? And, and the reason is, is that it opens um, up kind of a can of worms a little bit, uh, both personally and pastorally, because um, some of you might think, well, the only reason we're doing this is because we're entering into a <clears throat> capital campaign season. And that's one reason, but certainly not the only reason, and I'll talk about that more in a minute. But there's also um, just a real sense in my heart that this is something that we need to talk about um, because of both um, our position in life, our position as a country, the American church, and uh, how easily money can grab a hold of us. So we're going to take a couple uh, weeks and just walk you through what 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and I want to give you a couple reasons why we're going to do this. Here's the first one. It's this, from my heart. I do not want you to miss the spiritual value of this process. Let me explain. Considering making a financial commitment of some kind or working through that whole process of of really um, trying to figure out will we give, can we give, how much we give, puts you into a really interesting moment for spiritual growth. And I don't want you to miss the spiritual opportunities that will be implicit in that season. I've um, led a church through a process like this before, and every time there were amazing and wonderful lessons that people learned through this process. In, in fact, we're entering into a season where I just think God has some really unique things for us to learn. And I don't want you to miss a single opportunity for spiritual growth, a single opportunity for the things that God wants to stretch us <clears throat> 
and teach us. It is a stressful time. It's a personal time. It's a spiritual time. It's a beautiful time. But every single time I've gone through something like this, I have learned unbelievable things about God, about me, and about money. And so there's a a unique shepherding moment that is before us that I want to be sure we don't miss. The second reason is this, is the Bible talks a lot about money. Do you know that Jesus talked more about money than he did hell? In fact, I would argue that we probably don't talk about money enough. In fact, our elders would tell you that over the years we've not dealt with this issue as often as we probably should. And although it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, although it kind of opens us up to um, a little bit of exposure, the reality is that in order for us, I think, to deal honestly with how the Bible treats this subject, we've got to talk about it. And we've got to see what does the Bible say, and then um, how can we apply this in our lives. Here's the third reason, it's this, that our hearts are connected to our money. Jesus' statement is not only in the Bible, but we also know it to be true very practically, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the fact of the matter is, is that money can too easily grab a, a stranglehold on our heart. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 3 that covetousness is idolatry. And there is a real orientation of our heart that is tied to our money. What we give to are the things we think about, we pray about, we invest in. And where our money goes, our our heart is soon to follow. So for those of you that give already generously and sacrificially, you're going to love this this series. Because it's going to remind you, yep, that's why we do it. And those of you who struggle with giving who are um, sort of have a, a too tight of a, a grip around your money, this is going to be a little bit of a challenge for you. It's going to stress, stress you out a little bit. It's going to create some categories that you may not have, but some categories that I think are clearly in the Bible. The, the issue is not just dollars and cents. The, the issue here is one of the orientation of our heart and our soul, what we really love. The final reason is this is that I think that probably we've given more out of abundance than we have out of need. Um, One of the beautiful things that's been a part of our culture here at College Park is Christmas offerings and and taking special offerings for folks at various times and um, being really a generous church. And I really believe that God has blessed this church because of that. And I would tell you that when you look at that, you might think, well, we're doing really well when it comes to giving. And, and frankly, we are. But one thought that just is in the back of my head is whether or not we give out of abundance or whether or not we really know what it means to give out of need and give out of sacrifice. So that's why the giving gulp thing, I think, is so important for us to pray through, Lord, what is it that you want me to do that actually tests my faith and belief in you? Something that that presses me to a point where I I know I've got to be able to trust in you. And what are the lessons that you want to teach me through that process? So over the next four weeks, we're going to walk through the teaching of this this wonderful, these wonderful two chapters, some of my favorite um, chapters on the subject of giving in all the Bible. And I want to show you a vision of what biblical generosity is all about. And then we're going to give you the most significant opportunity in the church's history to practice that. And my hope would be is that once you have tasted and seen the Lord's goodness in giving, that you will come to see that the Bible is exactly right when it says that it is better to give than to receive. And you'd come to see the beautiful reality of what that's all about. So that's what we're going to do over the next uh, four weeks. So, first, the message of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. In order to understand what's going on in this book, you've got to understand three different churches. 
want to just give you a highlight before we dive in specifically to the verses. The first church that you need to know about is the church at the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, if you remember, was the place really where the Spirit of God descended, Pentecost happened, and people spread out from the city of Jerusalem. And obviously the church in Jerusalem would be mostly made up of Jewish people, folks who remained there, and James was likely the pastor of that group of believers. But a, um, a famine of sorts um, struck that region of the world, and um, the city of Jerusalem and the church specifically was really struggling financially. People in the church had a lot of need. There were a lot of poor people who were there. Probably folks came to the city of Jerusalem in need, and they just stayed there. And then they came under the umbrella of the, uh, of the church's need and the church's care. So Jerusalem church, Jewish, and hurting financially. The other church you need to know about is in the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth was a, was a thriving metropolitan area. 500,000 people likely lived there when Paul wrote this letter. It was a, um, a city that was kind of at the nexus of commerce. It was the main stopping point from the Eastern Roman Empire on your way to the Roman capital in Rome. And so Corinth was thriving. It was primarily a Gentile city, and therefore the church in that city was primarily Gentiles, made up of people from all walks of life, rich and poor, but mostly Gentile. And it was a church that Paul had a very interesting relationship with. They were known as a rather gifted church, and the problem was they knew they were gifted, and they wanted everyone to know that they were gifted. So at times they were very full of themselves, and so Paul wrote multiple letters to them, two of which we have um, as inspired letters, and in both cases, there's some pretty direct teaching on his part as to how they need to act and how they need to think. Now, as a part of Paul's ministry, when he went around um, the, the various parts of um, the known world, his commission from the Jerusalem church was to preach to the Gentiles, like the city in Corinth, but also to take an offering for the needs of the saints. The book of Galatians says that they commissioned Paul and blessed his ministry to the Gentiles, but said, be sure you remember the poor, the very thing he says, I was glad to do. So when Paul went to the city of Corinth, to the church at Corinth, he told them about the needs of the city of Jerusalem, and the folks in Corinth promised that they would take an offering. Paul then went to the churches in the Macedonian region, cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. These churches in this area were also under a really difficult situation. They were primary, primarily Gentile, but they also had immense financial needs. Some famine swept their region, and so they were under uh, difficulty as well. But when Paul came to them and told them about the offering that he wanted to take for the needs of the city of Jerusalem, he reminded them, or told them rather, about the fact that the city of Corinth the church there had decided that they were going to give, and that motivated the Macedonian church to give. And then Paul went back to the church at Corinth and told them that the Macedonians had given. And so he's using the personal example of these two churches as a way to motivate people in both of those churches to give. So that's the context of this particular chap- these two chapters in 2 Corinthians um, 8 and 9. Paul writes to the church after having come from the Macedonian region, after they had made a contribution to the needs of the Jerusalem saints, and then he writes to them encouraging them to make good on their promise to also give to that particular offering. So there's a threefold opportunity that was here. First, there was the opportunity to meet the needs of hurting people. 
city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem church. Secondly, there was a chance to bring unity. Here's why. Because if the Gentiles would give a generous gift to the Jews, it would show the Jews how much the Gentiles loved them, and it would continue to build a bridge between kind of the fractured relationships between Jews and Gentiles. And third, it was an opportunity for Paul to talk about generosity. So 2 Corinthians 8 9, you need to know, it's not about a building. It's about a benevolence offering. But what we have here is that Paul uses this benevolence offering to talk about the concept of generosity, and we have some of the best material in all the Bible of a biblical view of what generosity is all about. And therefore, it's incredibly helpful whenever we talk about giving in any context. Paul just simply used this offering as a chance to talk about what generosity is. So I want to give you four observations from this passage this morning. Here's the first one. It's this, that generosity is motivated through personal example. Generosity is motivated through personal example. Take your Bible and go over to 1 Corinthians 16. I want to show you this. I made reference to the fact that the uh, churches of Macedonia were motivated by the church at Corinth. And I want you just to see what their response was in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Verse 1 says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, that refers to the offering to be taken for the Jerusalem church, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So apparently Paul is going all around, and he's talking to all these churches about taking this offering. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So what Paul is instructing here is that this church has made a commitment that they're going to give, and then he gives some very specific instructions as to what they are to do in preparing for that gift. And so the entire purpose of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is to fulfill that commitment that they had made. Now go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. He then wants to motivate them to continue in this giving. And in doing so, he tells them the story of what happened in Macedonia. Verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." So what Paul does is he used the example of the Corinthian church to motivate the Macedonians, and then he uses the, 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 the motivation of the Macedonians and their example to encourage the Corinthian church. He believed that the story of generosity in one church would motivate another to grow in the grace of giving as well. Now go over to 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 2. Paul, in fact, told the... Um, the church at Corinth, um, toward the church at Macedonia, rather, so much about the church at Corinth that he wanted to be sure that they didn't blow it when it came to this gift. Second Corinthians 9 and verse 2. He says, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. 
So he says, look, I told them about you. And, and, and your zeal stirred them up to give. And then notice what he does. Verse 3, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove vain in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. So here's what he does. Just to be sure this church doesn't drop the ball, he sends Vito and Johnny. He sends two brothers who are going to be sure that this church collects um, this offering every single week, so that when he comes, it's really important to him. Why? Because it's the money? No. The money is just a platform. The bigger issue that's in play is the spiritual encouragement that's on the line. Look at verse 4. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. Verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the gift that, that you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. So what's going on here? Paul is doing something that I think is really important when it comes to giving, and it's this. That there is something really powerful about your life's message when it comes to generosity. In other words, when you are able to see the Lord provide in your life, when you get it from a giving perspective and you see how the Lord continues to meet your needs, you see how you can take Him at His word, and you've seen that happen, the story of your life is a powerful encouragement to other people. All the way back in the Old Testament. Go to Malachi 3.10. Malachi 3.10. It's the last book of the um, Old Testament. There is a really important passage in here where God, in fact, invites us to test Him in something. The challenge is, is that our faith is often weak and we don't believe that this verse is true. Malachi 3.10, here's what it says. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. This is Malachi 3.10. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And there's something about our human heart that says, yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, right. Like, that's really going to happen. And those of you who have seen it happen need to testify, oh, I've seen that happen. I've seen that. I've seen that over and over and over and over. This is where some of you who are in the senior citizen category can really help us. Because you have a lot more stories of the ways that you've seen God provide over and over and over and over. In fact, I think the best book on the subject of giving is a book called The Treasure Principle. It's a little book that um, we even have available. In fact, if if you um, are wanting to grow in the grace of giving and you will promise me that you will read this book and you will then take action on it, you send me an email and I will send you a free copy of this book because I think this book has lots of power. But the only reason this book has lots of power, here's why, is because this book is the life story of Randy Elkhorn. Randy Elkhorn in 1990 was a pastor of a large church and he began protesting along with a group of other people um, an abortion clinic in his area. It was a nonviolent protest and he was arrested. As a result of his arrest, the abortion clinic sued him and remarkably won an award of $8.4 million. Elkhorn then had a problem of conscience because how could he give 
money in, in this, this award, he'd end up funding abortions. And so therefore he refused to pay it, and then the court began to garnish his wages. He's a pastor of a church, and guess what's now happening? So the church money is actually going to an abortion clinic, and so he resigned. And he figured out that if he could divest himself of all of his assets and only make minimum wage, he would never have to give $8.4 million. And Elkhorn went to the process of giving everything away and finding a way to completely just lower his uh, lifestyle and life such that he would be able to live on minimum wage and give everything else away. And as long as he would do that, the abortion clinic would never see any money. And out of that experience was born this book. So this book is a story of a man's life message and what he learned about how to give joyfully when he was forced to, in effect, because of the circumstances of his life and what it did to revolutionize his understanding of money, possessions, and, and what giving is all about. Now, the reason I tell you all of that is this, that some of you have a very compelling life's message. You have seen God work, and you need to tell your story because there's other people around you who don't have a life story. They don't have a message. In fact, they don't see how in the world they could give. They don't know what the joy of giving is like. And guilt never motivates people to give. But you know what does? The compelling life example of other people who've been there, done that, seen God supply, and know that God's word is true, that you can trust him and take him at his word. So as we enter into this rugged journey of discovery over the next 40 days, if God shows up in a powerful way as you um, begin to trust Him and you have a, a, an opportunity for a life's message, you have to tell that story because it will serve as a phenomenal motivator of people like the Macedonians served for Corinth and Corinth served for the Macedonians. Second observation is this. Generosity is rooted in the grace of God. Chapter 8, verse 1. Here's what it says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So what he says here, I want you to know about the grace of God that's been given to these churches. So there's a sense in which generosity is rooted in three kinds of grace. There's past grace, there's present grace, and there's future grace. The fact that generosity is rooted in past grace means that we know that grace is receiving what we didn't deserve. It means that from a gospel perspective, the message of the Bible, that we are sinners, we deserve condemnation, we deserve hell, and everything that we receive beyond punishment, except for punishment, is just simply an overflow of God's grace. We deserve misery and punishment because of our sins, and God forgives us, and that's an overflow of His grace to us. In fact, that becomes then the very basis of all generosity in the first place. Look at 2 Corinthians 9 and, or 8 and verse 9, just a couple of verses ahead of where our text will end. We'll talk about this next week. The text says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. That's grace. And what Paul is saying here is that people who get this, who understand the riches of what has been given to us in Christ, look at life and needs of others through a different lens. Meaning, if you really know what grace is, then you're a gracious person. You've received, you see people's sin issues, you see their inconveniences of life, you see how they drive, you see their needs through a lens of grace because you have received so much grace. So it's rooted in God's grace to us. There's another kind of grace, 
present grace, which means that these, this church in Macedonia, it says, behold the grace of God that was upon them. See, there's a grace here that relates not just to a past event, but a sense in which a supernatural power of God is displayed in your life. This passage tells us that the Macedonians gave clear evidence of God's grace in them, meaning that there's no way that they would have thought to give like they gave unless God had motivated them to do it. They they would have been selfish, they would have been self-centered, they would have been scared, but instead they gave freely, even in their poverty, and they did so with joy. Their actions were weird from a world standpoint. Because the world says, hoard your money, grab it, don't give it away. You're wasting your money. A believer says, wasting it, I'm investing it in eternal bank accounts. And how could I hold on to my money when God has so richly blessed me with so much grace? Instead, they were generous, they were full of faith, which was the fruit of God's grace in their life. Another passage, look at 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. Of all of the verses in these chapters, this is by far my most favorite. And I think this is one of the most often, verses that I use most often in counseling. It is a verse that applies in innumerable ways and it relates to grace in the future. So you got past grace, you got present grace, and then you have future grace. And here's what it says. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That is a huge verse. It means that no matter whatever happens to you, there is always a boatload of divine grace, sufficient grace that God is ready to pour out upon us so that in every situation, at all times, we always have everything we need for every good thing that God calls us to do. We don't lack a single thing. But the remarkable thing is that Paul is talking about this in the middle of giving. Why? Here's why. Because every time I sign my name to a check and I put it in the offering plate, I am banking my faith on God's ability to give me grace in the future. I'm saying to him, I trust you. I give out of a belief that you will take care of me and you control the cattle on a thousand hills. God, you control the transmission on my vehicles. You control how my cars run, even though they all have over 100,000 miles. And God, you can do anything. You can make this car run for many, many more miles. God, you control the growth pattern of my kids. And even though their genes keep getting shorter and shorter, God, you are in control. God, you own my mortgage company. You own the bank account. You own it all. And God, you can make grace flow down to me like a mighty river if I just will simply trust you. And here's the thing, folks. We learn that remarkably and practically through the grace of giving. You're able to see in a tangible way, on a regular basis, that by giving things away, you are placing your hope in God's ability to give you what you really need. And that is not only good for your soul, it is a moment of worship as you realize, my trust and my hope comes from God. So, grace is at the root of what it means for us to give. Grace is the tone of New Testament giving. Grace is the foundation, it's the practice, and it's the future of all giving. Therefore, the New Testament talks much, much, much more about grace giving than anything else. So every once in a while, someone will say, well, what about tithing? How does that relate? Here's here's my answer. 30 seconds. Tithing would be the bare minimum requirement of a people who knew a sliver of God's grace. 
They, they didn't understand the fully orbed potential of what God's grace was. And now, in a New Testament understanding, we, we have a fully orbed perspective of what grace is all about. And I would just encourage you to maybe think about it this way, that New Testament giving is supposed to be more about grace than it is a percentage But it doesn't make any sense to me that we would somehow revert back to an Old Testament sliver mentality when we understand the beauty of God's grace and all of what He's given to us and the full riches of what Christ is. So I think tithing is elementary giving. It's the first gifts, but there's far more that's to be experienced in the fullness of joy. I tried to think, how could I maybe get our minds around this in the right way? And the only thing that I can come up with, and maybe it's not a good illustration, you maybe come up with a better one than this, but... When I asked Sarah to marry me, I gave her an engagement ring. And then when we pledged our vows, I gave her another ring. And that was really kind of the first big-time gift that I'd ever given her. And yet, since that time, over 16 years, I've given her a lot of other big-time gifts. And it's my joy to be able to do so. In fact, the longer we're married, the the more big-time gifts I want to give. But imagine if I said to her, you know what, that ring I gave you 16 years ago, this is just going to count like forever. So Valentine's Day and Christmas and birthdays and all that, all I'm going to do is just show you the ring on your finger for all this time. So I'm just going to say, hey, honey, I love you. And don't forget, I gave you that gift way back 16 years ago. Still counts, right? Okay, good. No, that's a bad idea, right? Even as gracious as she would be, that wouldn't reflect the fully orb perspective of all of my love and how it has grown. And I think that's maybe how we need to see New Testament giving through that particular lens. Here's the third thing is this, that generosity is linked to the Lordship of Christ. Here's where we get our little section title, First to the Lord. Look at verse 5. And this, not as we expected. He's talking about how they gave. And this, not as we had expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So here's one of the things that I hope happens during these next four weeks. I hope that as we talk about giving that you'll begin to think, you know what, giving is just the tip of the iceberg of what my real problem is. My real problem is, I'm not really surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. In fact, if I was really surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, then this kind of subject matter wouldn't bug me so bad, because after all, He does own everything. You see, most of you in here probably know the concept of the Lordship of Christ, but I would argue you really don't believe in the Lordship of Christ unless it actually shows up in how you handle your money. You can tell me all day long that you believe Christ is Lord, but if it doesn't show up in a tangible way like that, I would tell you, you just believe an idea. You don't really value that. I mean, listen to what the Bible says. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Haggai 2, 8. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Here's a killer one. Deuteronomy 8, 18. Remember the Lord your God. It is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. You see, giving is a reminder that everything I am belongs to the Lord. He created, He made it, He gives me the strength for it, it belongs to Him. And there's a radical shift that may need to happen in some of your thinkings that you don't own anything, it all belongs to the Lord. You're just simply a steward of His stuff. And that frees you. Your car gets broken, gets, gets in a crash, you're like, oh, Lord's car was got totaled this week, right? <laughs> Charles Wesley was once told, someone came running up to him and saying, your house, built, your house was burnt to the ground. He said, ah, correction, the Lord's house was burnt to the ground, and I have one less thing to worry about now. So, and that's just a different perspective. And you know what? The world doesn't look at it that way. They look at it as get, hoard, protect, it's mine. 
So one of the clearest examples or clearest illustrations of your submission to the Lordship of Christ is what you do with your money. That's why I think on a regular basis, giving regularly to the Lord's work, whether it's here or some other worthy cause, is really, really good for your soul because it reminds you, I could have taken that $400 check And I could have done something for me, but instead I'm giving it to you because it all belongs to you anyways. It's your stuff. It's a regular reminder that you are Lord. When I taught this at my last church and helped them understand this, we asked for them to turn in their commitment cards and really help them understand this concept of first to the Lord. And one of the commitment cards, I'll never forget, was turned in and it was wrapped um, it was the, the card was wrapped around a pack of cigarettes. And the person wrote a note. They weren't donating cigarettes to the campaign. They wrote a note and said, if I'm going to give my money, I first need to give this up as well. And that's, I think, what God wants us to look at. To say, you know what? Money is just simply one part of the fully or perspective of giving myself first to the Lord. Here's the last concept, and that is this. That generosity is part of Spiritual maturity. Look at verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Let me just bottom line it. You have all the talent, all the spiritual ability, all sorts of wonderful fruit in your life, but if giving isn't a part of the equation, you're not spiritually mature. You're not excelling in the grace that God wants you to excel in. Those who understand the beauty of God's grace, they hold their stuff loosely. A friend of mine says, they've stopped the curl. You know the curl is? In your hand, you start to curl. Stop curling your fingers. Release the curl. And the fact of the matter is, is that giving is a both remedy and a sign of what's going on inside of our hearts. Paul says to this church, as you have excelled in so many other things, excel in this grace. So a lack of generosity then is at its root a spiritual immaturity problem. Again, hear Jesus' words. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So for those of you who have a right understanding of this, and and you get this, and you, yes, I've discovered the joy of giving, you need to keep doing that because it's really important for your soul. And for those of you who honestly, when you look at your life, when when you look at your money, and you look at where you invest your financial resources, that there might be a little bit of a challenge inside of your heart that says, you know what, I, I'm not doing what I should be doing. And I want you to understand that what you're missing out is the joy of a regular, definitive way to say to Christ, you are Lord, watch this money go. And I want to grow in grace and be able to see you grow me into the kind of man or woman that you want me to be. So my goal in all of this is not to guilt you into giving to our mission expansion project. That, that is not my goal. I want you to give to that project. Make no mistake about it. I want you to give sacrificially to the project. But my end game for 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is to help you see that your investment needs to be seen through the right lens and the right opportunity or you will miss the joy of what generosity is all about. I want you to be able to experience what it means to trust 2 Corinthians 9, 8, that God is able to make everything abound to me, all grace. I want you to learn what it means to trust Malachi 3.10 and to see the Lord provide in ways that will strengthen your faith and make you know, yes, God, you are real, you are alive. 
I've done this a number of times in my life where I've had to make a commitment to something, and every time it drives me crazy. It does. I don't enjoy the process. It's difficult for me. My, my wife is, she's, has a lot more faith than what I do. I look at the numbers, I handle the checkbook, and I'm just like, you don't have faith, you're ignorant, you don't know what it's going to take for us to do this. And she's like, no, the Lord's going to take care of us. And you know what? She's right, because he always has. But in my, my overly analytical mind and heart, it can begin to capture my soul in a dangerous way. And so as we approach this particular um, uh, commitment time, as our elders were praying over it, I, I knew what was going to happen. And then I, I needed to be sure that um, I had my heart right. And so we sat down and I said, here's what um, I think the Lord's leading me to do. And, and uh, for the first time in my life, she said, wow, okay, that's a stretch. And I thought, okay, good, I'm, I'm in the zone, I'm where I need to be. As opposed to in times past, she would say, now we could probably do a little more than that. And um, for us, you see, it means um, leveraging some things for our future a little bit. It means taking a college fund and, and targeting some of those funds and the vehicle savings fund. And it, it means some things at risk, not overly at risk, but some things at risk, some uncomfortableness. And I turned in that um, commitment and just said, Lord, I'm going to trust you. And I, and I really want to learn the lessons you want me to learn this time. A day later, our water heater goes down. And I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me, right? I just, I, how can, I, I'm standing at the water heater. I'm just, I cannot believe this. I made this commitment, and now look what you've done, right? So I just have this, this I got to battle this. And my wife's like, it's okay. It, it called the plumber, $1,800. I'm like, holy smokes. Whoa, wow, whoa. So he comes over, he looks at it, comes back up the stairs, and I'm like, oh, what, what's the bad news? He said, you know what? Your water heater isn't broken. Just the pipe has come off. That's why it shut down. So if I just put this pipe on here, we'll be good to go. A couple hundred bucks, I'm out the door. I'm like, yes, do that. Yes. Excellent idea. And I'm, I'm rejoicing. I'm excited. I'm like, whoa, yes, 1800 200 That's awesome. So I'm down there. Now I'm very happy. And so I'm down there, and we're talking as he's fixing it. I'm watching what he's doing and just having a conversation. It turns out he's a believer and goes to a church in the area. We're just talking about um, what's going on in his world and his life and as he comes up the stairs and gets the pipe all finished, like he said, I grab my checkbook and I said, hey, what's, what's the bill? He turned around and he said to me, you know what's funny thing? Um, I, I just feel led that I need just to bless you tonight and just give you this one absolutely free. I'm not giving his number out, by the way, so you know. And at that moment, as I'm standing in the hallway, my eyes are welling up with tears as I realize what's going on here. This is not about a water heater. This is not about a plumber. This is about God saying to me, Mark, I've got your back. Second Corinthians 9, 8 is true. And you can bank your life on it. And it even relates to pipes and water heaters and cars and kids and clothes and jobs. It relates to everything that we have. And there are seasons of life when God wants us to trust Him and then watch what He will do. And it's for the joy of that that I want you to learn what it means to give for the sake of the glory of God so you would know what it means to live first to the Lord. That's what my aim is. And that's what I hope you experience by God's grace. Father, we um, pray that you would use your word and this um, sermon to open our hearts to a um, maybe a new level of spiritual discipline that we need to think about. Father, I know there's some folks in this room who have just blessed your heart beyond measure with how they've given. And whether it's to this church or 
foreign mission works or great nonprofits in our community have just just blown the doors off uh, your heart in terms of their giving. And I pray you'd encourage them today. Help them not to quit and help them to remember why they do it. Father, there's also some folks who probably are struggling this morning with giving, who even this message creates such tension in their hearts. And I pray that um, they begin, Lord, maybe to get just some new categories and patiently, lovingly that you'd help them to see that you are worthy to be trusted in all things and that money is a great way to prove that you are in control. So, Lord, a thousand stories are going to be created in the next 40 days. I know it and uh, heard some after the first service. And I pray that you would show yourself strong at College Park Church as your people bank their lives on you as they give in ways that would stretch our faith. So, Lord, do that, we pray, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.